Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Albany, Georgia, and it's a little different than your average. As always, this case was requested by a listener, and when I started researching it, I noticed that the victim's mother was still very active in the search for her daughter, so I reached out. And over the last week, I've worked with her and another woman who's been incredibly instrumental in tracking down all leads in this case. When it comes to this case, I'll be bringing you every detail as revealed by the victim's mother herself. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Jessica Van Zant Dietzel was one of four siblings, but she was the only girl, and rightfully so, that made her their baby girl for life. Her mother and father, Christina Johnson and Mark Van Zant, had their demons. They both struggled with substance abuse, and her father was in and out of jail. As children, Jessica and her siblings witnessed their dad treat their mother poorly, to say the least. And after 12 years together, when Jessica was only five years old, her mother decided that enough was enough. She pulled out a restraining order against Mark, got sober, and decided to never look back. After pulling out the restraining order, Christina moved her and the kids out of the family home and in with her cousin, but it didn't take Mark long to find out where she was. He drove over to Christina's cousin's house, violating that restraining order, and led the police on a high-speed chase that landed him in jail. According to Christina, Mark was put on suicide watch, but eventually moved to a regular cell. Unfortunately, though, after getting issued his bedsheets, he hung himself with them, leaving Jessica and her three brothers fatherless. As tumultuous as Mark and Christina's relationship was, to his daughter, Mark hung the moon, and being a daddy's girl without a daddy had a major impact on Jessica's life. For the most part, Jessica was a happy-go-lucky girl with big dreams of singing on American Idol. She led with her heart, and she was the kind of person where if you complimented something she was wearing, she'd take it off and give it to you and wouldn't take no for an answer. She had a strong faith, and she saw the best in people, but her heart would sometimes get her into trouble. In high school, when she was only 17, she fell in love with the older bad boy, a 21-year-old guy named Kenny. Kenny grew up bouncing around from foster home to foster home, was in and out of group homes, but was on his own now, and the resident bad boy, who was pretty well known in the local drug community, fell head over heels for this cute little high schooler with dreams of being a star. But as the story goes, it wasn't long before Jessica was pregnant. In 2017, at just 18 years old, she gave birth to her daughter Elena. And honestly, everything started off pretty well, as well as it could for these two. They got a place of their own, worked, went to school, and even got married. All Jessica wanted was to have a picture-perfect, happy little family for her little girl, even if it meant excusing some bad behaviors. She was going to make this work for her daughter. Unfortunately, you can't put a band-aid on a bullet hole. Like I mentioned earlier, Kenny had a hell of a history with drugs, and his history with them became both of their realities. In time, Jessica started doing drugs as well. It started off with weed, but spiraled out of control and made its way all the way down to meth and heroin. And as the drugs infiltrated Jessica's life, her relationship with Kenny got more and more volatile. Their relationship was a volcano inside of a tornado, and yes, I got that from an Eminem song. 
They were off and on as frequently as the days changed, and when they were off, Kenny was vindictive. In one instance, he followed her to a local motel, turned on his camera, and went live on a community page as he taunted her. In the video, you can watch him laugh and yell at Jessica, telling her she's a ratchet, pussified junkie, asking if she wants some heroin, calling her a whore, and then repeatedly yelling the word whore at her over and over again. The entire time he was doing this, Jessica was walking around the motel parking lot trying not to respond. As she walked past the front office, Kenny yelled at her, claiming that she was hoping someone inside would call the police for her. The entire time, she was just on the phone trying to get someone to come and get her. Eventually, Jessica was able to pull out a restraining order against Kenny, though it didn't stop him. He violated it time and time again, and every time she called the police about it, she was essentially told to prove that it had happened. Like, she had to be the victim and the police when it came to her being stalked and harassed. Eventually, she just ripped up the restraining order out of frustration because that's all she felt like it was, a piece of paper. That is, until one day when she was driving down the road, assuming it was any other normal day, when Kenny came up beside her and tried to run her off the road. Jessica pulled off at the first door she could find, and staff and security cameras watched in horror as Kenny got out of his car, started banging on her windows, and screamed and cussed at her. Finally, there were witnesses, and CCTV footage can't be denied. Because of that incident, Kenny was finally charged with aggravated stalking, and he wasn't just banned from being around Jessica, he was also banned from being around his daughter Elena. And while you'd think that would be great, if Kenny couldn't have Elena... It seemed like no one could. Instead of harassing Jessica in person, he started doing the only thing he could, calling defects on her to try and get Elena taken away. In true Kenny fashion, Christina says that he even filmed himself walking into the defects building to make the report. The first three or four times, the caseworkers came, looked around, and left, calling the reports unfounded. But the last time he called, Jessica wasn't in a good place. She wasn't doing well. She didn't have a steady place to live. And Elena was taken away and put into emergency foster placement. Jessica's mother, Christina, had offered to let her and Elena move in with them time and time again, so long as she stopped doing any drugs, got a job, and started piecing her life back together. But Jessica just wasn't ready to do that, and ultimately it resulted in her losing her child. As soon as Christina was notified that Elena had been put into emergency placement, she started the process of getting her granddaughter placed with her, but the process was slow. Little Elena was in the system for almost two months before she was able to get out and go live with her grandmother, someone she knew and loved. Now, neither Kenny nor Jessica had their daughter, and both of their lives seemed to be spiraling out of control. As volatile as the two were together, even after all of this, Jessica was still trapped in the cycle of abuse. As vicious and abusive as he was, she saw the best parts of him and felt like she could change him, and frankly, she didn't feel like she had anyone else anymore, so the back-and-forth cycle between them started right back up again, regardless of that restraining order. Jessica was on a reunification plan through DFACS, and she had regularly scheduled supervised visits with Elena at a local Burger King, and she would never miss them. She couldn't take Kenny with her because that restraining order also covered Elena. It was Jessica's choice to continue to be around him, but the caseworkers weren't about to allow Kenny to be around Elena. In this case, DFACS did everything they could to keep this little girl out of the mess that she wasn't in control of, and they do deserve the credit where it's due here. 
One day, it was time for a visit with Elena at Burger King, but for some reason, this time Jessica decided to bring Kenny along with her. No one really knows how she thought this was going to pan out, but it went south before it even started. On the way to Burger King, Jessica and Kenny got into a domestic dispute where her mother says he beat her over the head with a gun, but Jessica kept driving. They got to the Burger King and the caseworker was shook. I mean, this guy can't be here and clearly something happened in the car right over, so it was a scramble to get Elena out of there. Jessica was taken back to court to address the stipulations of her reunification plan, and it was decided that they needed to stop all visits with her daughter altogether until she could get the help that she needed. So, in October of 2019, Jessica checked into rehab, but it didn't last long. She wound up meeting a girl there, and the two decided to leave together, making up some random shampoo excuse to tell their loved ones about being kicked out, but everyone knew. And it was sad to watch because Jessica had a crowd of people who genuinely just loved the shit out of her. But addiction is powerful, and the drugs numbed the pain of losing her father, it numbed the pain of the mental and physical abuse from Kenny, and it numbed the pain of losing her daughter. Jessica wanted, in heart, to get better, but her addiction kept winning. As bad as things got, Jessica never lost the desire to be in her daughter's life. She was elated that her mother had gotten temporary custody of Elena and hoped that because of that, she'd still be able to see her. But it took Christina almost two months to get Elena out of the foster care system, and it killed her to have to tell Jessica that she couldn't bend the rules for her, but she couldn't risk losing Elena. That didn't stop Kenny from pulling his old shit, though. When he couldn't call defects on Jessica, he turned his attention towards Christina and reported that she was allowing Jessica secret visits with Elena. Defacts investigated and obviously found it to be untrue, but Kenny was ruthless. That is, until he went to jail. Katrina says he was arrested on drugs and weapons charges and was facing quite a bit of time. Whenever Kenny was in jail, his relationship with Jessica tended to flourish. They could live in a fairy tale bubble where he couldn't hurt her and she could be his hero, putting money on his books and posting on Facebook asking others to do the same, and they could bond over the distance and how much they missed each other and how they wanted to change their lives once he got out. While Kenny was in jail, Jessica actually went out and got a Kenny man, his nickname, tattoo on her chest above her collarbone. One side of her chest said Elena, and now her father adorned the other side. As much as I'd like to say that things started to look up for Jessica, they didn't. She didn't have a home, she didn't have a vehicle, she didn't have a job, and she didn't have a phone. She was essentially homeless aside from bouncing around from home to trailer to tent, whoever in their little circle would have her at the moment. The crime rates in Albany, Georgia, where she was living, are rough. Based on the statistics on macro trend, it's the fifth most dangerous place to live in in Georgia. The Albany crime rates are higher than Atlanta's, if that gives you any perspective. Meth and heroin are a big problem in the area, and the drug community is huge. And as huge as the drug community is, it's a really tight-knit community, and everyone seems to know everyone. Jessica made friends anywhere she stayed, and because of that, there was always a warm, dry place for her to go to sleep at night and a phone she could borrow to log into her Facebook and message or call her family, which she did regularly. 
Facebook is an incredible resource in this kind of situation. We saw it in the Destiny Avery case. When someone doesn't have a phone, they can always hop on Facebook Messenger where minutes and texts aren't an issue. As long as someone has data or Wi-Fi, you can use their phone to keep in contact. As the months passed with Kenny in jail, despite the new tattoo adorning him, Jessica moved on and found a new boyfriend who ran in her same circles. PJ, as we'll call him, had his own place, a trailer, so the roof over her head became less and less of an issue to Jessica, and it felt like her life was becoming a little more stable. However, PJ had his own set of issues. For one, he was Jessica's mother's age. PJ was 45 and dating an essentially homeless 21-year-old, and his criminal record dated back to before she was even born. Her family was worried about her, particularly her mother, brothers, and her cousin, who Jessica would occasionally stay with when she needed to, but Jessica did keep in regular contact with them through the Facebook Messenger app, so they had a little sense of peace, knowing she would always check in on Elena and would let them know how she was doing and what she was up to. That is, of course, until February of 2020. On February 4th, Jessica used Facebook Messenger to call her mom. Christina begged her to get help to go back to rehab so she could be the mother she always wanted to be to Elena. But this time, Jessica told her that she was keeping her distance to protect Elena. The comment was odd, but Jessica hadn't been in her right frame of mind, so her mom didn't think too much of it. Little did Christina know, though, that this would be the last time she would ever speak to her daughter. Christina continued to message Jessica off and on for the next 10 days, but never got a response. Her messages would be marked as read, but none of them were responded to, and Christina started to get a bad feeling. Sure, Jessica had her demons, but she never just stopped communicating. Christina gave her daughter some time, knowing she was in a bad place, but the longer she went without hearing from her daughter, the more nagging that gut feeling got that something was wrong. Over the next few weeks, Christina heard from her sons asking if she'd heard anything from Jessica, and on March 1st, Christina got a message from Jessica's cousin also saying that she hadn't heard from her. And that's when Christina knew that this gut feeling that something was wrong was more than that. The last contact Jessica's cousin had had with her was sometime around February 14th. According to Christina, she had messaged Jessica letting her know that Kenny had been released on bond. And even though Jessica was with PJ now, she wanted her cousin to let Kenny know where she was staying. That day, March 1st, 2020, Christina called the Albany Police Department and told them that her daughter was missing. Christina told them that she was going to go over to her daughter's new boyfriend, PJ's trailer, where Jessica had been staying, and that she'd meet them there. Three hours after the call, an officer finally met Christina at PJ's place, but PJ wouldn't answer the door. A man on a bike rode by and said, you know he's inside just watching you on the security cameras. Christina was rightfully panicking and was worried that Jessica might be in there, so she let the officers know that PJ had warrants, hoping they'd just knock down the door. But police said they'd just try again the next day. According to Christina, they didn't take a missing persons report that day. Instead, she says that they had more of an attitude like, this is addict behavior, I'm sure she'll come back, and told her that they'd put out a bolo, which is a be on the lookout. 
And while Jessica was an addict, Christina knew her daughter. She knew she wouldn't just stop all contact and disappear, especially considering the fact that Elena's birthday was coming up in two days. Jessica would never miss out on making sure that her daughter had an incredible day, knowing how loved she was, even if she couldn't be there to share it with her. And regardless of her status as an addict, her value as a human doesn't change. An addict going missing isn't any less important than anyone else going missing. We saw this response in the Taylor McAllister case, and something has to change. One aspect of someone's life doesn't make them less important to save. When Albany PD didn't take the missing person's report, Christina went home frustrated and feeling defeated. She hardly slept that night, and the next morning she went to the police department where she lived in Lee County and begged them to help. They took it a lot more seriously and were legitimately concerned since it looked like no one had heard from Jessica in more than a week. Even though the last place Jessica had been seen was in Albany, they went ahead and took the missing persons report and gave Christina a business card with the instructions to go back to the Albany Police Department, talk to the lead investigator, and give them that business card. And it worked. By March 2nd, Jessica was officially considered a missing person and had two departments working on her case. They started with the usual calling local jails and hospitals to make sure that she wasn't checked into either, and she wasn't, so they started tracking down her friends. While all this was going on, Jessica's family was able to get into her Facebook and learn that the last contact she had had with anyone was on February 18th, 12 days prior. On the 17th, Jessica had logged into Facebook Messenger using someone else's phone. We'll call this person Phone Guy. From Phone Guy's phone, she messaged several people. The last message and phone call sent out from Jessica's Facebook Messenger was a little after midnight on the 18th. It was to a male friend of hers who we'll call Messenger Guy. I don't want to release any names that haven't been released by the police yet, so I'll post a who's who diagram and put it in Jessica's highlight at the top of my Instagram at the Heather Ashley to make this as easy to follow as possible. This case is going to have a lot of nicknames. In these messages and calls, Jessica told Messenger Guy that she was staying at the Deep South Motel, which was known around town for prostitution and other unfavorable behaviors, and that it got out. Her family wasn't sure what that meant, but the message also contained something that looked like it might be in code. Bottom line, Jessica was at the Deep South Motel, she was using Phone Guy's phone, and she seemed concerned. Messenger Guy tried calling her back around 10 a.m. on the 18th, but got no response. In fact, no one ever got a response from Jessica after those last attempts to contact Messenger Guy. This would make Messenger Guy one of the last people Jessica ever spoke to. But when you consider the fact that she was using Phone Guy's phone and would have to give it back to him, Phone Guy now looks like he may be the last person that we know of to have seen Jessica alive. Naturally, police want to talk to him, but according to Christina, he wasn't having it and lawyered up immediately. That, however, didn't stop law enforcement from pulling out a search warrant for his phone and canvassing every single place it pinged around the time Jessica was last heard from. Unfortunately, none of those searches turned up any evidence as to where Jessica might be or what might have happened to her. Police got a tip that Jessica would sometimes visit a couple of men in a local tent city near the Flint River off of Radium Springs Road, so they headed that way to try and track them down and see if they knew anything. 
But there was one major problem. What was once Tent City was now completely underwater. Albany was having record flooding after some bad storms, and the water levels rose to the point where Tent City was completely devastated. I want to talk about this Tent City for a second. Yes, Tent Cities tend to be inhabited by the homeless and oftentimes can be riddled with crime and drugs, and this one was no different, but it also had some pretty interesting and helpful characters in it. One of the tent guys, we'll call him Church Tent Guy, which will make a lot more sense in a second, had totally built up this little city. I'm talking actual buildings and electricity built up. Church Tent Guy took a lot of pride in his little community in the woods and the people who lived back there. He was close with Jessica and knew her mom from back in the day. When the flooding started, Church Tent Guy was able to find a church in the area that allowed him to live in one of their sheds. The other tent guy, who we'll call Fish Tent Guy, moved out behind a local seafood place. Police and Jessica's mom, along with a woman named Leah, who's made it her mission to help addicts and families find their missing loved ones, tracked down Church Tent Guy and talked to him. According to Church Tent Guy, it had been weeks since Jessica had stopped by his shed at the church. That being said, he did mention that while she was there, she talked about being afraid of someone, though he didn't know who. It should be noted that throughout this investigation, Church Tent Guy has always been ready and willing to speak with police and Jessica's family and even let them go through his phone. With his phone, they were able to verify that the last time he'd been in contact with Jessica was on February 3rd, the day before she spoke to her mother and told her that she was staying away to protect her daughter Elena. According to Leah, he seems to genuinely care for Jessica and even apologized when he had to tell Christina that he'd done drugs with her daughter. They go on to track down Fish Tent Guy, and he claimed that he too hadn't spoke to Jessica in weeks and that she'd actually been banned from the property for trespassing. However, there was no police report to back that up at all. Fish Tent Guy has a very distinctive tent. It's adorned with handmade artwork and notes and Christmas lights hung up to cheer up the place a bit. And on February 13th, he took pictures of Jessica inside of it. They were found on his phone, which he did allow Jessica's family to look through. While Jessica's mom and Leah were talking to him in his tent, they noticed a backpack hanging up and asked what was in it. He took it down and opened it up, and inside, they found some of Jessica's clothes. He told her family that a female friend of hers had dropped it off there a few weeks prior. A twirl around the Christmas tent also revealed a note that read, I heart name here. A name that's very similar to Fish Tent Guy's name, but also the name of another guy she knew. It was proudly hanging up near some doodles of quote-unquote pussy pink and some other random shit. Jessica's mom confirmed that the note was written in Jessica's handwriting. I went on Facebook to see what fish tent guy might have posted around the time Jessica went missing, and it was a shit show. That is, after I had to filter through the absurd number of accounts he has to figure out which one he was using at the time she did go missing. On March 1st, he posted, Hey PJ, Jessica's new boyfriend, I can't believe you're trying to put me in your bullshit, brother, even tagging him in the post. Oddly enough, though, Kenny commented. He responded to the post saying that he wasn't going to stop until Jessica's found. Fish tent guy called him a punk-ass bitch and told him to come out to his Christmas tent behind the seafood joint so he could put him to sleep. Kenny kept it just as classy and told Fish Tent Guy that he was going to beat his punk ass to sleep, take the $7,000 he claims he has, and be his reaper. 
Friends started commenting, and it didn't go well for Fish Tent Guy. They feel like he knows something and should be working harder to find Jessica, and even asked him if he put Jessica to sleep like he said he wanted to do to Kenny. It doesn't help that he added in another comment that he's scared of no one because he's got skills. Fish Tent Guy tells them that what he does is his business and that he's been cleared by the Albany Police Department, which everyone finds hard to believe because the day this was posted was the first day Christina, Jessica's mom, tried reporting her missing in Albany, and we all remember how that went. Lee County didn't make the official missing persons report until the following day. The search for Jessica continued, but it was largely organized and executed by Christina and Leah. They got volunteers together to search by the Flint River where Tent City used to be and waded through waist-deep waters looking for anything that might lead to her. But there were no signs of her, except for maybe a puppy. Just prior to going missing, Jessica had started taking care of a little pit mix puppy. And on the street between where Tent City once stood and her new boyfriend's trailer, they found a dog crate. It was off the road a little bit in an area that wouldn't be safe to search on foot, so they had a friend they called Drone Guy fly the drone up to the crate, and inside was a small puppy. The puppy looked like it may have been the same one that Jessica had been caring for before she disappeared. Unfortunately, the puppy had passed away in that crate after being discarded during the flood and was, as devastating as this is to say, unrecognizable. They couldn't confirm or deny whether or not this was Jessica's puppy, but Jessica's family thinks it might be. With all that, the police are somehow no closer to finding Jessica or figuring out what happened to her. And that's when Christina's phone rang. It was the Albany Police Department, and they told her that they had good news, something you don't say to the mother of a missing person unless it's good fucking news. They tell her that Jessica was spotted at the Luxury Inn between noon and 1 p.m. that afternoon and reportedly willingly got into a dark-colored Ford Taurus. The department even went as far as to post about the sighting on their official Facebook page. But the police hadn't even gone down to the Luxury Inn to make sure that this was, in fact, Jessica, and Christina called them on it. She knew in her heart that Jessica wasn't just evading everyone. It wasn't like her, and no one she knew had seen or heard from her in weeks. So Christina herself hopped in the car and drove down to this motel and actually found the girl the tipster thought was Jessica and spoke to her. It wasn't Jessica. It never was. Jessica had never been spotted. It was a very not-missing blonde. And more than ever, she felt like law enforcement was on a mission to prove that Jessica was simply wandering aimlessly, not wanting to be found, instead of looking for a missing person. Albany assures Christina that they're using all of their available resources to track Jessica down, though maybe checking out leads before giving family members false hope should also be on that to-do list. Because of that Facebook post, a lot of people assume Jessica had been found, and some of the people who had planned on helping look for her didn't because they didn't think she was missing anymore. 
Christina continues her role as lead investigator on her daughter's case and remembers that Jessica had a food stamps card. So she goes down to the issuing office, lets them know what's going on, and they pull up her account. Jessica's food stamps card showed that the last time it was used was on February 14th at the N Market convenience store on Clark Avenue. She tried to make a purchase, but there were insufficient funds. Doesn't matter. Her card was there. Let's check it out. If we're keeping track of her last known movements in the days before she went missing, which obviously we are, we know that she was at Fish Guy's tent on the 13th and on the 14th was at the N Market convenience store. The store was able to pull up their security footage from the 14th and voila, there Jessica is walking through the door as someone holds it open for her. You can only see that the person holding it open is wearing a dark colored long sleeve shirt and you can see his hands. No one knows whether or not they were there together. Jessica has her hair up, is wearing a blue Nike t-shirt, dark colored jeans, light socks, black slides, and carrying a long beige purse on her shoulder. At this point, Jessica's name, information, and photo is blasted to all of the local media stations. No one seems to know what she was wearing on the day she disappeared, though. You would assume a phone guy might have that information since she was using his phone the last time anyone had any contact with her, but alas, he has an attorney. Regardless, they publish the information they do have, that Jessica is 5'7 and 150 pounds with blonde hair, brown roots, and hazel eyes. The media reported that she had a lip ring below her bottom right lip, but it also looks like she might have gotten a Monroe piercing prior to her disappearance as well. It's reported that she has Elena tattooed on her chest. It's actually above her right collarbone, but her chest nonetheless. And in the months prior to vanishing, she also got that Kenny Man tattoo above the left side of her collarbone. Jessica also had a heart tattoo on her hand, perfectly flawed tattooed on her right thigh, and through Facebook photos, it looks like she also might have a large tattoo on her ribs. Along with her description, the media collectively reports that police believe she went missing sometime between February 16th and March 1st. But we know that she was actively using Phone Guy's phone a little after midnight on the 18th at the Deep South Motel, so I'd say that the 16th and the 17th are probably out. We know that the last contact she made with anyone was around 12.30 a.m. to Messenger Guy. Messenger Guy tried calling her back at 10 a.m. and got no answer, so it looks like whatever happened to Jessica likely happened on February 18th between 12.30 in the morning and 10 a.m., a nine-and-a-half-hour window. So let's talk security cameras. I wondered why there was no CCTV footage of Jessica at the Deep South Motel since we have some footage from the N Market convenience store, so I called them myself. It turns out that they do, in fact, have security cameras. I asked if they had any facing the parking lot or the front desk, and I was told that they did, which is interesting because Leah says that they actually went to the hotel themselves and were told that there were no cameras. I was also told that they have booking information for anyone and everyone who books a room at any point in time. You know, normal hotel shit. Yet somehow we have no footage of Jessica at the hotel or any information about which room she was in. You'd assume they should have processed that room on day one or looked into whomever the room was booked under, but neither Christina nor Leah have been informed of whether any of that was ever done. Jessica didn't have any money. She didn't even have enough food stamps to cover something from a convenience store, so the chances of the room being booked under or paid for by her are slim to none. 
To the right of the Deep South, there's a doctor's office. I called them and they said that they also have cameras that face the street. To the left of the motel, there's a Hardee's. I think at this point you can deduce that I also called them. And while their cameras don't point towards the road the Deep South is on, it does catch the cars at that intersection. So, if anyone left the Deep South Motel between 12.30am and 10am, theoretically, with the information I've been given, the Deep South should have caught it on their cameras. If they turned left out of the parking lot, the doctor's office's camera likely would have caught it, and if they took a right, the Hardys would have caught it. With this information, I left a message with a detective that Christina trusts the most, so we'll see where that goes. By the way, the woman I spoke to at the Hardys was fucking awesome, and I've never wanted to take a road trip to a Hardys more in my life, but back to the case. On March 5th, police finally get in contact with PJ, and he's not a ton of help. He says that the last time he saw Jessica was on the 16th, though a source who will be named Anonymous says that she's adamant she saw him with her on the 17th and even recalls the exact location they were at. I'm working on getting the contact information for that location so I can call and check and see if they too have security cameras, and if so, whether or not they were ever checked after this information was made available. The timeline we have now is that Jessica was with Fish Tent Guy on the 13th, was at the End Market Convenience Store on the 14th, PJ says he saw her on the 16th, Anonymous Witness says that she saw them together on the 17th, and she reached out to Messenger Guy on Phone Guy's phone from the Deep South Motel on the 18th, and then nothing. Radio silence. Christina, Leah, and community volunteers searched day and night. I believe Leah's exact words were, fuck it, I'm not doing anything else. Where are we looking today? And they did this for weeks and weeks. They woke up every single morning and looked for Jessica until they went to bed and then woke up the next day and did the exact same thing. I'm talking knocking on drug dealers' doors, going to sheds and tents, questioning witnesses, recording interviews. They searched through floods as far as they could into the Flint River and put up flyers. They were their own police force. They feel like someone in the community has to know something, and frankly, it seems like more than a few people probably do. It's just getting one of them to crack that's the problem. You have to take into account that a lot of people surrounding Jessica's case have extensive criminal histories. Some have habitual offender statuses, and many of them have active warrants against them. These aren't people who are going to be particularly comfortable picking up the phone and calling the police with information because the police knowing where they are poses a threat to their lifestyle. Over the next few months, Jessica's case is covered by Dateline, Oxygen, Live PD, and even Nancy Grace. And with each large publication, her family feels like the police do put in a little more effort. It's not hard when Nancy Grace herself sends down cadaver dogs to help. According to Leah, Nancy Grace was incredibly kind while they were working with her. She said it was beautiful to see how she connected with Christina and that she seemed to genuinely care about finding Jessica. Christina was so excited to finally have canines out there. She hated the fact that she wanted cadaver dogs to search for her daughter, but she also knows that something happened to her, and whatever did, she wants to know because the not knowing is the worst part. There's no closure, your mind wanders, and sometimes you wonder if the places your mind goes are as bad as reality. And you're not sure if you want the answer to that, but an answer would stop the questions. Her mother deserves to know what happened to her daughter, and Jessica's daughter deserves to know what happened to her mother, and whoever is involved in whatever did happen deserves to be brought to justice. The cadaver dogs came out, but with the flooding, if Jessica was anywhere back in the woods, any trace of her would likely be gone by now, and the search came up empty. 
Authorities searched the river themselves. From what Christina told me, it sounds like they had someone in a helicopter flying above the river because it's not exactly safe to go into. I researched the river a bit and it looks like it averages at around 35 feet deep. The deeper the river, the faster it flows. And according to Leah, this river is rough. This isn't anything anyone swims in and it's not uncommon to see massive trees rolling by in it. Time continues to pass and a third agency gets involved. In addition to the Lee County Sheriff's Department and the Albany PD, Doherty Sheriff's Department, which is actually where Albany is, comes in to assist. And as wonderful as this sounds, Christina runs into issues with the three departments not always updating one another with the information and leads that they have. At one point, Christina was talking to Lee County about something she had told Albany, and they had no idea who or what she was even talking about and asked her to hold on so they could grab a pen and paper. You can only imagine the agony and hopelessness Christina felt while she was spending every waking hour tracking down every bit of information about her daughter's disappearance, waiting in waist-high waters, visiting men in tents and sheds, finding her daughter's clothes, and going through her Facebook messages only to try and loop the police in and they're not even communicating with one another. You can tell just how all over the place the departments were by the following. In April, WALB did a piece on Jessica's case and asked for comments from each of the investigating agencies. Lee County says what they've said from the beginning, that they believe Jessica's in danger. Albany sticks to the same comment they made in March, that they don't suspect foul play. And Doherty said that they were assisting Albany and couldn't make a comment. It's hard to believe that at this point, knowing everything we know and everything that we know should have been looked into, that the departments aren't even on the same page as to whether or not they believe Jessica is safe. At this point, I think it goes without saying that one solid law enforcement unit needs to take control of this case instead of multiple agencies trying to keep track of what the other is doing and failing to keep one another in the loop. Be it the GBI or the state police, someone needs to come in, get all of the puzzle pieces in one place, and put it together. Christina doesn't feel like anyone is truly actively working to find her daughter, and in comparison to how hard she and Leah are working, I'd say it's a valid concern. This case gets deeper and twistier the longer time goes on, and I wish I could cover it all in one episode, but honestly, I don't think it would do Jessica or her family the justice they deserve, and I'm still waiting on a call back from that investigator. So, part two of Missing Jessica Van Zant Dietzel is going to blow your mind again next week. And if you thought this episode was a lot, just wait until episode two. For all maps and photos pertaining to this case, check out Jessica's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about the twists and turns that are this case. Special thank you to Jessica's mom, Christina, and Leah for allowing me to dive into her daughter's case with them. I think it's safe to say that the Big Mad True Crime family is in this case for the long haul. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you part two of Jessica's case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.